It's, uh, so we're currently in between sermon series right now at Grace Life, and you know it's my pleasure to be able to preach whatever is on my heart. <laughs> so that's that's pretty exciting. And you know, as I was kind of you know some some days when I prepare for the sermon, it's you know it's you know I have a passage and I'm like really struggling with it emotionally. I'm like you know what I'm not connecting with this, but I still got to preach it. And you know that, this was not one of those times. This is um, one of those times when. Uh, you know, it just, it felt like the topic kind of fell pretty naturally to me. Um, and it's something I've wanted to kind of talk about for a while, uh, because I've, I've seen this um, kind of in my life, in a lot of my friends, the people around me um, in our church, a lot of people. Um, I think there's oftentimes a sense of distance from God. Um, there's a sense of discouragement, um, even frustration with God about not responding and not moving in our lives. And that's something, you know, I experienced a lot when I was actually going, uh, doing full-time ministry. It's funny because, you know, six years ago when I, when I first stepped into my role as a full-time pastor, that was in some ways the first year when I started to really struggle with dryness in my walk with God. So the timing was impeccable. <laughs> you know, before that, I was on fire for God. I was experiencing God in all these ways. I, you know, as a new Christian, I love God, I love to talk about God. And shortly after becoming a full-time pastor, you know, I don't know if, you know, causation, you know, correlation isn't related to causation, right? But uh, shortly after becoming a full-time pastor, I started to enter into a prolonged period of time that, I don't know, it just, it just felt like dryness in the spirit. Um, and it wasn't, you know, something that happened immediately. It wasn't necessarily triggered by anything. It was just as I kept walking with God and kept doing things and, you know, gradually scripture started to speak less to me. Um, gradually, I just found myself less passionate about God, less passionate about prayer. Um, and even got to a point about two years ago during the pandemic, um, bad things happened during the pandemic, but during the pandemic where, you know, where it just got to the point where I was like, man, is, is God even real? Um, is he even, you know, does he even exist? Like, honestly, I'm kind of at that point. And and it was, it was very difficult because I was still in ministry at the time. We were transitioning to online church. And, you know, some of you guys know because you guys were there at the time. But I just actually had to take a break from ministry for two months. Um, and I went to um, my in-law's place, which happens to be in Hawaii. So that was very nice. <laughs> you know, um, and, and we just, you know, visited them. And we just spent time there, you know. And I just kind of worked through my doubts and worked through my questions and you know, was, I want to just be real with you guys, you know, um, it was a time when I was honestly questioning, um, you know, am I going to come out of this still a Christian? Um, what kind of faith am I going to come out of this as? And it, it was scary in some ways because I, you know, I devoted my life to this thing. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd said in college, like, you know, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you call me to go. And then, you know, 2020, I'm like, are you even real? <laughs> you know, was this... Was this, even, was this even real, or was it just some emotional experience I had in the past? You know, I know I'm not the only person that has experienced, to some degree, some kind of dryness in your walk with God, some kind of sense of distance, um, some kind of sense of discouragement, some sense that, like, God, I know what you're capable of, and I know you can provide, and I need you to provide, whether that's spiritually or whether that's, you know, financially, whether that's in our health, in something in our lives that we're like, God, you know, I need you to provide. And it seems like God is just silent. Um, and he doesn't speak and he doesn't move for a long time. 
And that's kind of what I want to kind of address because I heard this sermon um, on Sunday uh, by John Piper as I was doing one of my classes. And, and he, he used this passage, and this passage in some ways opened my eyes to a different way about thinking about those periods of dryness and those periods of testing even in our lives. And I think what was eye-opening for me is that like, when we go through periods of dryness, when we go through periods where we feel like God is distant in our lives, usually there are like two ways we think about it. Okay? So usually we either think two things. We think, one, God is not good, God is distant, God does not care. I mean, I theologically know he does, but he certainly doesn't seem so. And that starts to erode at our faith, and eventually we're just like, no, I don't think God is good, or I don't think he exists. You know, it goes that way. Well, the other way that people take it is, I must have done something wrong to distance myself from God. If God is distant from me, I must have sinned in some way. You know, I must have, you know, just missed too many QTs, right? I must have done something, you know, in some way or shape or form to alienate myself from God. And, you know, that's why I'm in this mess that I'm in, right? And so those are the two default ways that people think about, right? And I think this passage, this, this really interesting passage from the Old Testament, actually opened my eyes to a third way of potentially thinking about these periods of dryness that I think pretty much every Christian experiences at some point in their life. This period of just, God, why aren't you answering? Why aren't you moving? And so that's the passage I want to talk about today, just full disclosure. Um, some of it, a lot of it, is inspired by John Piper's sermon, which I will <laughs> link to you guys if you want to watch. It is my own sermon, but, you know, I just want to put it out there. There are some things, some things he just said that, you know, I was just like, hmm, you know, I, I need to put that. You know, I need, I need to talk about this. Um, so, yeah, so let's get started. So we're, we're talking about Exodus 17. It's a very short passage, testing in the wilderness. So I'm going to read for us. Let me actually, first, let me pray for us. I always forget, but we need to pray. Oh, Lord, Lord, would you soften our hearts to your word today? God, I pray in faith, knowing, God, that you say, that you are who you say you are, Lord. That you have made certain promises to us in your words that you tell us to hang on to and to believe. Those things are that you are good and that you are for us and that we should ask and, and we should receive. But God, I feel like for so many of us, Lord, that just the trials and the difficulties and the confusion of life walking with you has reduced down so many of those beliefs to just theoretical abstract realities aren't real. And God, I pray today that you would heal those things. God, that you would use this passage in your words, God. God, to bring us to a place of trusting you again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Testing in the wilderness, Exodus 17. So it begins like this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
The context of this passage is this, this is an exodus, right? So previous to this is the famous 10 plagues. If you ever, you know, heard of that, you know, sort of the, the judging of, oops, let's go back. Um, the judging of, um, of Egypt by God, you know, so these plagues, there's like the frogs, there's like the blood, there's like the flies, all that stuff, you know, that you might have watched in some animated cartoon or something. You know, and there's the famous sort of splitting of the Red Sea, and there's all these really dramatic, miraculous things in some ways, these like one-time things that have never been repeated ever again in the history of mankind and world, right? Where God demonstrates his glory, demonstrates who he is, he shows them who he is, and he brings them out of Egypt, out of slavery where they were, and he brings them out, right? And so now they're in the middle of, you know, on the way to the promised land, there's like this like peninsula called the Sinai, Sinai Peninsula, right? And this is kind of like desert sort of area, and so they're in this place, right? It says that the congregation, oops, at the congregation, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. What is going on? Okay, <laughs> it's doing weird things. Moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim, this place in the desert. But there was no water for the people to drink. What I found pretty, just a, a basic insight, but something I just not really, I don't know, it just never clicked for me before. There are two things that are happening here. One, they are moving according to the commandment of the Lord. So God is telling them, hey, go here, right? Hey, stay here for this number of days, right? In other places in Scripture, we see it's by a pillar of fire, pillar of clouds. So there's this miraculous sense of God's presence, and he is literally telling them where to camp, where to go. And yet, at the same time, he tells them to camp at a place that has no water. And that, I would say, is a pretty bad place to camp, right? Like, it's a pretty essential thing. You know, we're not talking about, like, air conditioning. We're not even talking about, like, you know, luxuries. We're just talking about water, like, pretty, pretty much, like, the second most important thing after oxygen, right, that you need in your life. So the point is here. God intentionally brings us to places of no water to test us. God intentionally brings us to places of no water to test us. And when, Piper said this in his sermon. I was like, just, I don't know, it just blew my mind. I was like, huh, I guess that is true. I guess that is right. There's scriptural proof for God doing this with the Israelites. And we, and we can see this perhaps in our lives as well, that there is an intention of God to bring us to places where you and I have to depend on him for survival, where he withholds perhaps some things that you and I might consider necessary, right, in order to do something in order to test us. And I thought that was just something that really should reframe and challenge about how we ought to see when God seems to withhold things from us, when God seems to withhold either spiritual things, whether it's people that I talk to that, you know what, I've been QTing and God isn't speaking to me. I mean, he's withholding spiritual water, literally. He's withholding his presence, literally. You know, or talk to other people, it's like, well, I'm unemployed right now, you know, and God seems withholding a job. I mean, I think a job is a pretty essential and a pretty good thing. I'm not asking for something crazy here, you know. For other people, it's like I'm asking that God will work in my family that is so broken. You know, my parents who don't know him and who need to know him. I think these are pretty good things that I'm asking, pretty necessary things I'm asking for. God, why aren't you doing anything? But it's intentional here that we see that God does it. And the reason why, if we look at the context of Exodus, is not because God hates them. And it's not also because they have, at this point, sinned and done something to sort of separate themselves from God. 
There is a purpose behind what God does, and it's because, rather, he loves them. We see in Exodus 19, this is later on, right? This is the famous giving of the Ten Commandments. God says this about his people. He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is saying something here about, hey, the Israelites, you know, I'm doing something. I have a higher calling for you than just beyond comfort merely, right? I want you to be my people. In order for you to be my people, you need to trust me and you need to know me because that's the definition of being my people is you need to have this special relationship. You need to understand who I am, that from me is the source of even your water and your food and all these other nations. They think the river is the source for their water and their food. They think other, other gods are the source of their water and the food. But no, you are my people, so I want you to know that nothing else is a source of life for you than me. So I brought you into the desert. I brought you into a place of no water because I want, you to show, I want to show you that and I want to test you in some way. So that's what I want to talk about today is that concept that God brings us into places of testing, not because he hates us, but because he loves us and he's doing something in it and he wants to work in it. Now I want to back up for a second and talk about what is a test and why, you know, when we think about the word testing, it's normally not a positive, you know, connotation, right? Some of you guys, you know, you guys are literally about to take final exams. So, you know, you test's not a good word right now, right? Um, but what, you know, testing can be a, a, a negative thing, right? It can be like something that people do out of mistrust or out of like skepticism, right? Um, like, you know, I, I don't know if I can really trust you, so let me test, let me check out your story to make sure you're legit. You know, make sure you're not lying to me. You know, I'm already in a place of skepticism towards you. You know, um, I grew up with a father that was not always truthful. <laughs> so I felt like for me, I was always like, you know, what questions can I ask to really kind of ascertain whether he's telling the truth or not? You know, um, you know, so things like that, you know, it can come from a place where there's broken trust already. And, you know, you're just trying to, you know, get at sort of what's actually going on. Or testing can be actually a positive thing. Um, testing can be like going to the gym, you know, and seeing how much you can lift, right? And training in that and, and being able to be like, wow, like there is a proving in the process that as I'm growing and I'm exercising my faith, you know, I'm exercising my muscles, you know, like now I can lift, I don't know what's a reasonable amount. I don't lift, guys. <laughs> I don't know. I could bench press my body weight now. I could bench press twice my body weight now. Or I don't know, right? There is a testing in that process that actually produces joy, right? Because there's a proving of something. I know if sometimes, you know, in the past, I don't know if in middle school you did this, but I did this, I think. Um, we had, you know, science fair projects. And, you know, one of, you know, the fun science fair projects is build like a, you know, build like an earthquake-resistant building out of toothpicks or something, you know. And so, you, you know, you, you work on your design, and you're like trash-talking the other kids, and you're like, you know, mine, mine is so much better than yours, and none of you guys understand anything about engineering, so everything is just whack anyways, right? You know, but you're trying to apply these things, you're trying to do all these things, you're building these buildings, but if you were just to build the building, and that's it, it would, it would just be like, well, that's, that's not that fun. I mean, you know, cool, built a building, nice. But the fun part that everybody looks forward to 
right, is when you shake the table. You know, when you simulate the earthquake, right? When you test the building, because you, and you want to test your building, because you want to prove, you want to show there's a delight and a joy in being able to see how strong your building is. In some way, in the same sense, in faith, there is a sense in which God desires to test both for ourselves and for him to show for glory, right, to prove the strength of our relationship with him. I think um, this famous author in Khalil Gibran, he said that love knows not its own depth until the hour of separation. Love knows not its own depth until the hour of separation. In the same ways, we do not know the quality of our relationship with God and how much we actually trust him until God brings certain things in our lives to test and to reveal for us whether we actually do. So testing is this good thing, and it has these two results. One, you know, it reveals what is there, right? So if you do not have faith, it reveals that you do not have faith, and you separate and you part ways, and that happens to a lot of the people in the wilderness. They do not have faith. They will never have faith. They're not interested in this whole deal, right? And they are not going to be God's people. But for those who do have faith, you know, testing produces either this proving of glory or this training, right? This revealing that the faith is not quite there yet and that it needs to be strengthened. And it's this interesting concept because I see this all over the Old Testament that God indeed does test, right? We see this with Abraham, right? And so these are pretty extreme tests. We see that this with Job, just such an interesting test going on with Job. And I want to talk a little bit about Job because I feel like it's such an interesting book. It's such a relevant book for us as well. Job, I think, shows us really what the essence of God's testing of our faith really looks like. In Job, if you remember what recalls what happens, right, you know, God, you know, allows the stripping away of Job's circumstances, right? So his family dies. I mean, that alone, I think, could break most people, right? And then, you know, he's like physically like boils on his skin. He's dying. He's hated by all these people. All these things are happening. Yet I think when I read the book of Job, I don't see that as the primary thing that actually was torturing him. None of those things were specifically the primary thing that was torturing him. I think the thing that was the hardest for Job, the thing that probably gave him the most agony every single day of his life, was not knowing why. And I think Job had this huge dilemma, dilemma in his head because he had these two things that he believed. He believed that God was good. And he would not renounce that. He would not curse God. He knew that God was good. But he also knew at the same time he had not done anything wrong, right? He had not, you know, he had not done anything to incur judgment. And so for him, there was this contradiction, and his experiences threatened to overwhelm his conviction of his faith. And every night, I, I just imagine, I don't know, I imagine Job wrestling with himself. I imagine Job looking at his circumstances and thinking it over in his mind and being, logically, this makes no sense. Logically, none of this works out and checks out. Everything about this contradicts what I've previously believed about God and his character and who he is. But I also know and I trust that God is good. And so what do I do? And I felt like he was tortured in that tension for a long time. And actually, it's interesting because when we look back, right, and we have the authors, we have the advantage of seeing, you know, the perspective of why this was happening to him. We see that that was precisely the point, that God was trying to test in his life was this question, how strong was, God's, how strong was Job's conviction that he really is good? 
that God really is good and trustworthy. And God wanted to bring that out, wanted to show that, and wanted to reveal that, and even ways in which it was weak. And I think that's something that's really telling about the ways in which we will be tested, that in some ways, by definition, the testing for us will be in ways that are incomprehensible to us. If it was easy for you to understand, it wouldn't be testing, right? If you knew exactly what was going on, like, wow, what's going on? God's doing this and this. Would it really test your understanding of whether God is good or not? You see, that's the essence of all testing in Scripture, all proving in Scripture. God puts people he loves to this place where he confounds them, almost frustrates them on purpose, so that they might, you know, develop and train this trust in him. You know, whether he really is good and whether he really is trustworthy. And I, I think this is an opportunity for us to think about today, right? Going back to this. You know, we can either choose when difficulties and trials happen in our lives, we can either choose to think about it as God is punishing me. We can either think of it as God just isn't good anymore. Or maybe he doesn't exist. Or maybe we can see God in every difficulty, everything that is hard, that is not good, that ought not to be happening, and I don't know why you're allowing it, we can see it as opportunities for God to grow and to train our dependence and trust in him. These things are not happening because God hates me or I've sinned or any of these things, but because God loves me and he is growing my faith. And a lot of times, I'll be honest, in that testing process, you do not know how it is growing your faith. <laughs> it does not look always so linear, right? It doesn't always look like, oh, you know, every day I'm just getting stronger and this is great. You know, when, you know, 2020 year, I call it the, the summer of doubt for me. <laughs> you know, when I was in Hawaii, like, you know, I was really just like, I was just so confounded. Like, I, I just didn't understand why God was allowing me. I was praying this question every night, like, how do I know that you are real? How do I know that you are true? And I'm like, God, just give me an answer. It could be so simple. I remember that back in time, me and Richard were still in Stepping Stone together, and, you know, there was a time when we were both like, man, like, asking you shall receive God is good. You know, God, you ask for the Holy Spirit. God says he will give the Holy Spirit. Let's pray until we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray until revival happens on our campus. And we're going to pray until it happens, guys. You know, we're, we're all like amped up and we're all doing this. And let me tell you, that did not end well. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what Richard thinks. It, it, it just, it felt like God just didn't answer. You know, it was just kind of those things where like, we're praying. God, gift us. God, fill us with the Holy Spirit. We need you. We can't do this without you. And then nothing happens. And it just kept going on and on and on until we're just like, okay, like, are, are we even, like, called? You know, maybe it's not it's us. Maybe it's our calling. Maybe it's this or that. And, you know, we were handling it in different ways. Richard was handling it in his way. I was just doubting. You know, I was just going out there. And I'm like, Jesus, are you even real? And I remember in that process, at the end of that, you know, I spent the whole summer just basically running away from God and, like, throwing tantrums at God. And, you know, and, and you know, Honestly, like, thankful to my wife for putting up with that because it was not, I was not a pleasant person to be around during that time when, when your worldview is crumbling around you, right? You know, but there was one thing that God spoke to me, or I feel like, you know, at the very end, there was a little glimmer of something that, like, spoke to me. And, and then there was this moment when I was reading, I don't know how, I was reading about C.S. Lewis's wife. Um, her name is Joy Davidson, I think. Um, you know, and, and it was this, like, testimony of her life and, you know, how she came to Christ and and, and, you know, her testimony is very interesting because she, was, uh, she grew up as a Jew. Um, and, and she grew up in a period of time when uh, she was an intellectual elite. She was extremely brilliant. Um, she was a writer. And she was Jewish. Um, and she was very headstrong, very just smart, intelligent person.
person. Um, and, and then she said she came to a point at some point in her life where she felt completely helpless. And this was a moment in which her husband actually, um, who had struggled with mental illness, called her one day and said, hey, I don't know if I'm ever gonna come back. And he just kind of left it there. And she had a child at that point. And I think, I think there was a moment in her when she talked about just feeling completely reduced to nothing and just having nothing. In that moment, she suddenly felt like, you know, she experienced some kind of presence in the room, just some kind of divine character or personality or comfort that comforted her. And that began to search for her when she started to search, all right, who, who is this? You know, so she went through the major world religions, like, is it, is, it this, is it this one? Is it this one? Is it, is it Buddha? Is it Allah? You know, is it, you know, let's just go through all of them. Is Jesus, you know, like, is it, which one is it, you know? And she said that when she came to read the New Testament, she instantly knew from the character and the personality of who Jesus was, this was the person in the room with me. And she said something, you know, that, that struck my heart. And that was the one, one thing that struck my heart and heart at that summer, right? She said something. She said that I would have recognized his personality among 10,000. You know, that when she read about Jesus and she read about who he was, she said, this is it. This is the Lord right here. And when I read that for me, I think it was a reminder to me in that season that, okay, nothing makes sense right now. I don't understand anything, right? I'm like reading through these archaeology textbooks, trying to understand whether the Old Testament is biblical or not, or whatever, you know, like historical or not. But that moment, I think it was just this moment where I'm like, I, I can't. Like, I can't leave. Like, I know who Jesus is. I, when I read the New Testament, I see his personality, and either he's the Lord of the universe or everything else is just hopeless. Like, I don't know. Like, I have nothing else. And it was just that moment where I was like, you know, I would have recognized this personality among 10,000, you know? And it was just a moment where Jesus just, it was just this gentle kind of, just this glimpse, right? Like, that he's there. And my faith is a lot better today. You know, I, I'm not saying I don't struggle with doubt as much, uh, doubt anymore, but I don't struggle as much. And my faith feels different, and it does feel stronger, I think. Having gone through times when it felt like God was so frustrating and so distant, you know, when I stand here and I talk to you about the reality of God, it is not as a naive person who's never experienced anything contrary. It's as somebody who's walked through that personally in my life, and yet has still, in some ways, come back and said, no, this is the Lord of my life. This is who I'm going to follow. I might not understand everything, but I know that. And I think that's what testing is, right? We're all going to go through it. It's all going to make no sense. It's going to reduce our faith to nothing. But it's good. I think it will show us. It will build us up. I think God is good in it because he wants to show us. He wants us to see that he is good. He wants us to trust him even when everything seems to not make sense. Let's continue on. We'll look at how the people of Israel respond, and they don't respond well. <laughs> Exodus 17, two, uh, 2, yeah. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. 
I mean, this is, you know, in some ways, think about this as test, the, the Israelites just completely failed, <laughs> zero, right? You know, within, and this is, you know, the historical background is within six weeks of seeing the, the parting of the Red Sea, they're here out there. And, you know, I, I mean, like, let's, let's, you know, not having water is a big deal. I get it, right? It's a big deal. I would grumble to it. It'd be hard, right? But they had just seen the Red Sea parted in physics-defying ways, right? They'd seen water turned into blood. They'd seen these things happen to them again and again. And actually, the previous chapter, God had already brought food out of nowhere, right? Manna. And here they are thirsting for water, and their instinct is immediately to say, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Ha, I knew it, God. I knew that you weren't good this whole time. You know, as soon as the doubt arises, like, I knew it. You know, you're just here to kill us. That's exactly what your plan is. You know, and ha, you know, we've got you now, God. <laughs> and we're out here in the desert, and there's no water, and that is proof and their minds are so fixated on that they can't even see beyond that. They can't even see the greater purpose of what God might perhaps be doing because God is in that moment withholding some specific provision in their lives. I think that's something that, you know, we do. I mean, I, if we talk about failing the test, I feel like everybody I know has failed the test, right, in some ways. Um, and, you know, before we get into sort of how God deals with that, I think there's a really gracious way in God deals with that. I think there's something here in this passage that we do need to hear um, what the passage is telling us is don't be like the Israelites, guys. <laughs> this is why it's here in the passage. It's actually memorialized. It's really interesting. Moses chooses to actually memorialize this. Later on, he says, and he called the name of the place Massa Meribah because of the quarreling of the people. And Massa means testing, and Meribah, I think, means quarreling. Right? So he just calls them. You know, we just want to let you remember and know what you did here and how you performed, right? Um, because you tested the Lord and you said, is the Lord among us or not? And later on, it's you know, brought up in other places. Like, I mean, Think about, like, you know, memorializing your greatest failure. I mean, this is kind of embarrassing, right? In Psalm 98, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like those guys at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test, put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Now, I don't think God is just being unnecessarily mean in some ways and just being like, well, you know, let me just, you know, memorialize your shame just for the sake of it. I think there's a purpose in here, even as scripture that speaks to us today, that's saying, hey, don't be like these guys. To the Israelites, hey, don't be like what you were in the past. Remember what you did? Don't do that again. And for us, today, if you hear his voice, don't do that. In Hebrews, then again, it, you know, today it applies to us. The author applies this directly to us, and he says, take care, brothers, lest that in any of you be an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened, by the deceitfulness of sin. And he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, he quotes it again, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And I want to just dwell on that point before we move on, that I think there is something for us today to think about, to not harden our hearts. And what he's saying, not harden your hearts, isn't... I think what he's saying is that if you are in that place of testing... And if you are currently experiencing that place where you are tempted to doubt God's goodness, right? He's not saying don't struggle. He's not saying, oh, there's no, there's no place for questions. There's no place for legitimate, you know, I mean, Scripture is all full of questions, you know, full of, you know, questions like, God, why aren't you here? Why is what's going on? Like, why have you not answered? That's not hardening your hearts, questioning things, doubting things. Hardening your hearts 
It's specifically choosing to remain in those doubts and choosing to let that become your new reality and your new Lord and your new thing that you obey. The difference between doubting and hardening, I think, can be illustrated using a physical example. So, uh, you know, if you guys go to a chiropractor or, you know, if you guys know kind of how spines work a little bit. Okay, I don't really know how spines work, but, you know, I just feel like there's doctors in the room, so maybe I, you know, um, but um, I believe that there is this kind of process where, you know, there, there are these people who, you know, if you hunch your back a lot, right, if you kind of, if you keep yourself in this kind of position, you can unhunch your heart, you can unhunch your back, right, like, you know, you're still, your spine is flexible, you're able to do that. But I think if you do, if you keep yourself in this hunched position for decades and decades and decades, correct me if I'm wrong, there can be this sort of like bone forming kind of hardening process where you actually get hardened into this position. You can't actually like, you're, it's no longer your choice or your will to straighten up anymore. And as, that is kind of in some ways the illustration between doubting and questioning. Doubting in some ways is like hunching a heart. You know, it's possible, it just happens, it's part of wrestling with things. But hardening is continuing on in that and persisting in that until you are no, not, not, no longer able to straighten up anymore. That's the point of hardening is that you get to the point where you can't even have faith anymore. You can't even repent anymore. If you were to repent, God would take you back in a moment because that's who he is. But if you continue on, that's what he's saying, in sin and, you know, and unbelief in these things, and you continue on in that, then you will eventually replace, um, reach a point where you will no longer want to repent. Like, if you repented, God would take you back, but you're not going to. You're incapable in some ways of straightening your back, of believing, because that's become the pattern and the direction of your life for so long. And that's what he's talking about here. It's not, if you're doubting, you're questioning, you're wrestling with God, that's all good stuff. That's all real stuff. But he's saying, don't harden your hearts. Don't continue on that. Wrestle with God. Go to God with your questions. You know, talk to him. You know, God has grace for us. And even throwing rocks at the sky sometimes is better than just ignoring him and giving him the cold shoulder and refusing to believe anything that he has to say. Don't harden your hearts like these people did. I mean, this is one a one-time thing that happened. They continuously did this in the wilderness again and again and again and again. God would show them more things. He would entice them with more, like, good, God, I'm good. And they would just be like, nah, nah, you know, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> Don't harden your hearts as in rebellion. But even if we do fail, and this is what I want to end on, there is grace of God in the failure. And there's grace of God, so much grace, even in this passage. Exodus 17, this is the middle section. This is how God responds to people who have disobeyed him, to people who have basically just already jumped the gun and said, you know what, let's just stone Moses and let's go back to Egypt, okay? <laughs> they, they said this six weeks after seeing the miracles of God. You know, God entirely could have had the right to be like, you know what, I'm done with you guys. Or like, I mean, that's, that's, just, that's just over the line, you know, that's blasphemy, you know? Like, but God does not do that yet. He says, and the Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock of the Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. Do you catch what happened here? Is that despite people's failing of the test, God still gives them water. And not only does he still give them water, he still gives them 
his presence. He's not just like, all right, you know what, just, just water, I'm going to be over here because this is just, this, mm -mm, I'm not, you know, we're not in the same room together, this is not. No, behold, I will still stand before you there, Moses. Right? I'm going to stand before you in the sight of all the people, even though they have just insulted me and blasphemed right, and said all these things that they should not have said. They've doubted and they questioned my very character. Right? They've offended me, but still, I'm going to stand there. I'm going to give water because these are my people. And I'm quoting something from Piper again um, that from, from the sermon I think that you know, I was inspired by. He says that how is that able to happen? You know, how is God able to consistently forgive and give grace even when his people fail? And, and he points out there's a really interesting other passage in the New Testament that kind of talks about this. And this is something that blew my mind, folks, okay? Because I'd always read this verse and I was like, what the heck is this talking about, okay? This blew my mind. 1 Corinthians 10.4, talking about these people, talking about the people in the wilderness, it says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Well, I was confused by this, was like, you know, I was just imagining a cartoon, like some person hiding under a rock, cart, you know, thing. And then, you know, when they're not looking, they just like, do 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 they just come down. Like, how does a rock follow people? Like, it doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but the way he kind of Piper explained it was this. He said this. Every undeserved blessing shown to God's elect, God's people in the Old Testament, was bought by the blood of Christ. Every good thing that happens to anybody in the Old Testament, like in this case, when God continues to give water in his presence, despite his people literally saying to his face, you want to kill us, we're out of here. All of that was bought by the blood of Christ. So it's not inaccurate to say that they drank from the spiritual rock. Because who actually provided water from that moment? It was Christ, through his blood, interceding for them that they were able to be fed, that they were able to give, get grace for what their time in need. And I think about that, and I think about that time 1,400 years later, perhaps 1,400 years later, um, when Christ was crucified and the rock was literally struck. And the rock that was Christ was literally struck by his people, by Roman soldiers, by his people who jeered and spat and pierced on his side by a Roman soldier, and guess what came out? Blood and water. God gave Christ over to be a rock that was struck to provide for us, to provide for people who were spiritually dead in a wilderness, spiritually speaking, who had no life and no relationship with God. He struck Christ, and life-giving blood and life-giving water came out life-giving blood to forgive people of their sins, life-giving water that is the Holy Spirit and the life that we have in Christ. Everything that we have, guys, every grace that we have, every good thing that we have that we do not deserve comes from Christ being struck. I think that's the point also of this passage that, that we were able to see from the New Testament. So I want to encourage you guys with that today, you know, that twofold encouragement to, to not harden your hearts today if God is calling you if you feel like God is speaking to you, then respond in those words today. He's literally talking about today. <laughs> you know, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond to him. You know, if you are able to still repent, if you're able to still turn to God, if you feel like you're able to still come to him, it's not too late, guys. God is still going to forgive you no matter what, no matter how egregious, whatever the thing is. If you're able to hear and respond to God today, then don't delay do it today. I think that's what he's trying to say.
Don't harden your hearts. And go to God with this confidence of grace, knowing that God will forgive, God will take back, God will restore, even in our doubting and our questioning and the things that we said to God that we ought not to have said, because Christ was struck for us, because grace was given through us, through Christ. And that's what I want to leave you guys with today. So let's pray. Father, I thank you. God, thank you so much for who you are. And thank you, Lord, for forgiving me, Lord. And even in my moments of weakness, God, in the times that I've doubted and questioned and even slipped into just straight-up unbelief, hardness to you. Father, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for your grace that never ends. And Lord, I pray that for anyone else here today who feels distant from you or perhaps have never known you, Lord. I pray that, God, would you... God, God you say, Lord, that let us draw near to your throne of grace to find mercy and to find help in our time of need. God, I, I feel like you are calling, Lord, in this scripture, and not just today, but every day, for people you love to come home to you. And so I pray that, God, I pray that, God, today you would begin to restore and mend broken relationships with you. That today you would help people to take that first hard step to come to you and to say, God, I believe. I believe you are good. I, I don't know why. I don't, honestly, I don't see it sometimes. I, I question it. I, I don't understand what's going on around me. But I'm going to hold on to this, that you are good and that you love me. God, help us take that step for us, for those of us who've just felt like even those words are so hard. God, soften our hearts and give us the faith to do that, Lord. God, so we ask that you would restore, God, our joy in, our, in your salvation, Lord. Restore us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.